Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Lorraine. Yes, Trish. I got a message this week from a listener, and it was about you. Oh, was it <laughs> if I won a prize? Well, no, it did make me laugh. It was very nice, but it kind of made me laugh. So, shall I tell you what she said? Yes, I'm fragile. Don't make me upset. <laughs> okay. I'm well, fragiler than I look, basically. Oh, well, she was asking me about jeans that we'd recommended in a previous oh, yes. episode. And she said that if it had been your recommendation, there was no point getting the brand because she was only five foot two inches tall and she'd always thought that you had the stature of a model. What? <laughs> I had I, to tell her that I'm you were like size. five foot three inches tall. <laughs> Not even five foot three. That's what I say I am. Oh. That's my height for my CV. Oh, she was suitably surprised. So you obviously give tall, don't I you? Give tall. <laughs> you give oh, I like tall. that. I'm going to carry on with that. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. And before we go any further, we want to thank you for all your lovely messages and wonderful words of support. We really do read them all and we really appreciate you taking the time to contact us. Yes, that's because we do everything ourselves, all of it, the social media, the email replies, the Facebook group. We do have our lovely producer, Amanda, who helps us to make the podcast, but everything else is just you and me, Lorraine, isn't it? Yes, there are no little elves helping us, are there, Trish? No, no elves. Now, in today's episode, we are going to be tackling your work worries. We're going to be looking at tummy troubles and we will be chatting to an inspirational guest whose life story reads like the plot of a dramatic novel. First up will be some jibber jabber on how to tackle big career decisions during your second act in life. Then we'll be interviewing best-selling novelist Amanda Prowse who's moving and ultimately uplifting midlife story about her teenage son's struggle with his mental health may help families during this challenging time. Yes, and for how to win at midlife, we will be delivering some detailed and easy to follow advice on gut health. This is something which becomes increasingly important for women in perimenopause or menopause. So if your tummy is playing you up, listen on. And as usual, we'll be nostalgia noodling with a trip back in time to our teenage and childhood years. Um, And before we go on, we wanted to ask you all a favour because we wanted to ask if you could download the episodes when you listen to them rather than listening to them on wi-fi um we'd really appreciate it and the reason for that lorraine is well the reason is well the podcast powers that be told told me and trish this is the downloads are good for our numbers so while you might be listening to them on wi-fi it's more valuable to us and we'd love to keep doing this podcast um between all the other activities we do if you download it so um do the download. That's a new phrase do, I've invented. Do the Trish. download. Do yes. the download. Not downward dog. Download postcards from midlife. 
Today we are going to be talking about midlife career decisions after a thread on our Facebook page which really got Trish and I thinking. Both of us have left big jobs in the past couple of years and we've changed direction to some extent and indeed slowed down a little bit. I think you probably would have called us high flyers in our careers, but when we hit our 50s, we started to feel a little bit differently about our day-to-day jobs and this partly led us to setting up this podcast. So we saw this question on our private Facebook page from a lady called Rebecca and it really intrigued us. Yeah, she had almost uh, 100 comments and uh, it was a real conversation starter and Rebecca wrote, Hi Lee. I could do with some objective advice. I have the possibility of going for quite a big job and being encouraged to apply. I'm flattered and very tempted as I do feel a sense of underachievement work-wise in recent years, having put the children first for so long. It would mean increasing my hours though at a time when I'd probably imagine taking things a little bit easier. I'm 50 next month. My youngest son is 16, so maybe I'd like to get my teeth stuck into something. Anyone been in a similar situation? What did you decide and how did it pan out? Wow, that's it's quite a biggie, isn't it? That one, yes, I think. It is fascinating. Mm. Mm, it is a sort of it is that life stage I, I mean I found when I turned 50 I mean a lot of things collided at that time you know obviously when my job came to sort of an end about a year and a half ago um, I still have this voice at the back of my head saying you need a big job you know and I think it was to do with status professional identity money and also probably out of habit but you know fast forward 18 months and it's a very, it's a very different story I feel very very differently about it yes. and how, how, where are you on that little trajectory, Lorraine, because you were about a year yes. behind me. In the I think I may be a year behind you. Yes, mm. I, I am a year younger than you. You are <laughs> doing everything. Can a year we just behind me? remember that? Yes, <laughs> ba- the baby of the podcast yes. duo. Yeah, um, I think. <laughs> what I think about this, and what intrigued me about Rebecca's letter was her. There was a phrase in it which I think is kind of the bit that sort of set off a bit of alarm bells um, for me is she says I'd probably imagine taking things a bit easier mm-hmm. now when you look at all the replies I would say 90% of the replies were be confident go for it you can do it I did it it's amazing but the thing I've learned in my year of not doing this massive massive job managing these people multi-million pound budgets constant you know and I was on a weekly so it's a high speed is that actually I never asked permission to slow down. I never even mentioned that. It wasn't even an option to me to not be going at 100 miles an hour. And part of me thinks that, Rebecca, that's the bit of her letter that intrigued me the most. The bit I thought, why can't you, yes, give yourself confidence, but why don't you give yourself confidence to say no to something mm-hmm. like this? To mm-hmm. say no, I just don't think Generation X can ever imagine the have it all generation saying no to a big offer yeah. because we are quite grateful as women yeah. to do that and we do we have to be grateful to do that do we really could we say no could we slow down or the thing that actually wasn't mentioned in any of the comments could she have gone back in and say this is amazing I, I love to do this job but I only want to do it four mm-hmm. days a week or is mm-hmm. it possible for me to job share this job could mm-hmm. I do it with somebody else or is this job two jobs I'm really good at this bit of it. We, we don't negotiate. I don't feel as women. I've never, yeah. ever in all the people I've interviewed for jobs had anyone negotiate with me over salary, female uh, applicants I'm talking about, over salary, times. Once they're in the jobs, there's been lots of negotiations mm-hmm. um, and I've been quite happy to, for, for part-time work if, if the results still work for the company. But I just thought maybe it would have been good to see in that thread someone saying, hey, yeah. Rebecca, you could do it a different way. It doesn't have to be done yeah. this way. 
Yeah, I think if I was in that situation oh, that somebody came and offered me uh, or asked me to apply for a big job, I'd so probably now, I wouldn't have done this before, but I would probably think, right, how much do I need the money? Because obviously there is a practical element. Yes, we yes. need money to survive on, but how much do I need big job money? Um, or will a medium or smaller size job salary work instead? And um, I probably would really think about the impact it would have on my day-to-day life and my relationships. <laughs> my son said to me a few months ago, he said, mum, you, you've been so much happier since you haven't been in a full-time job. And I was like, oh, yes, I think you're right. But then I also realised it sort of coincided at the same time as me starting HRT. So I'm not really sure which is, a, which <laughs> sure. is probably both. I think it's a combination of both. So I think the impact on your day-to-day life and relationships, and, and I think, will you enjoy it? Is it, are you going to enjoy it? Is it challenging? Is it going to stretch your mind or is it just going to be a big old hassle at the end of the day? So I think it's kind of trying to think about some of those things. Yes, it? I think when I was deciding about the job when I worked at the Sunday Times, I thought obviously the pandemic played into this and financial mm. security does play into it. What what I'm doing four things. I'm, I'm doing a job. I'm writing a book. I'm looking after my children. I've just launched a podcast. I'm very unhappy which of those four things is not making me in any way happy and I don't think will make me happy going forward Mm -hmm. and and the big job is the thing that didn't make me happy Mm -hmm. um to some extent you only learn that a little bit I think in retrospect but I have had in my career um some mentors so I had an official mentor when I was editing Elle magazine who would come in every four weeks and talk me through we were going through a giant change we were merging the digital team with the print Mm -hmm. team and it meant an open plan office nobody having an office I didn't have an office and I'd be sat out with the troops as it were so I wanted to make sure my management staff was fit for purpose and mm-hmm. not going to alienate people and I had someone come and mentor me which was so so useful to have someone with skills and tactics mm-hmm. and very specific things that you can do to work out how to work and I've also had and I think you have as well Trish throughout my life uh, older women who've mentored yeah me, who I've gone to because they've been through things and I've also had younger women I've used as mentors mm-hmm. because they say things in a very different way not women I work with women outside so I think if you are in that position perhaps looking around you to who could mentor you but I think the point you make is financial considerations aside is it going to make you happy you you're are you going to be lying on your deathbed thinking thank god I made it to the end of that meeting everyone appreciated me or are you going to be thinking I was around at home more Mm -hmm. enjoying my life with my family maybe either way nothing neither is right or wrong but those are some of the thoughts you could have yeah I think any but for anybody else who's on a career break or working part-time and is thinking about going back into a a bigger role and there's a really really good organization called women returners and their website womenreturners.com has so much fantastic advice and basically it's an organization that supports professional women back into the workplace after career breaks Um, they work with companies that run returnership programs specifically aimed at at older women and these are all kind of companies that really see the value in the kind of life skills and experience that that women like us have had and who also see the value of taking a career break to raise a family because what you're doing there you're you're not sitting still are you you're adding more skills you're doing so much so many more skills and there was this really nice piece of advice when I was speaking to somebody who said just never ever apologize for taking a career break no just don't don't think of it as something that you should apologize for because you will have done so many things during that period that will bring value to the next kind of organization that well, you I blame the patriarchy for making us apologize for okay. that kind of thing obviously <laughs> 
Or exactly. should we apologize? That and everything like, else. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But just one more thing on women returners, because I, I did this. It was really useful. They've got a step-by-step process that t- talks you through, makes you go through all this kind of thinking process about why you want to return, in what way do you want to return, what your considerations should be. So I definitely would advise going on there and having a look. And as always, we'll post um, the link to this in the information about the podcast on the Facebook group. Yes, I did watch a fantastic TED talk for people who want to make big career decisions. And it's with a kind of motivational speaker who is older. Um, And that's the other point, isn't it? It is good to see older women in senior positions. Mm. Um, So if you can stay in that position or take that job, but make it work for you, the hours, the times, et cetera, that is good as well. But this is a a TED talk by Mel um, Robbins. She's very American. She's very shouty. I quite like her. But um, she was saying, think about the five second window. So your brain is risk averse. It will tell you many, many things that will happen if you take a big risk. So you have to step in before your risk averse part of your brain starts to to give you rational thought and and Mm -hmm. count down. She recommends you watch the TED Talk. It's brilliant. We'll put the link on Facebook. Um, If you count down five, four, three, two, one, and just do whatever was your absolute first instinct Ooh. Whether that's sporting or career, or whatever, your first instinct will be your right instinct, and then your risk-averse brain will talk you out of it. If you count five, four, three, two, one, and decide to do it in those five seconds before the the, the sensible bit interacts with your absolute gut instinct, which is you know your subconscious telling you what's right, then you can probably make bigger decisions for you. And also, these are not permanent always; these decisions they can be reversed. Mm. I think we often define a future for ourselves that hasn't quite happened yet. We'll put the link to that TED Talk up. But I do think it's really lovely to hear from people like Rebecca because it was so wonderful to see the community around Mm. her on Facebook give her all of that advice. And they were very specific and very helpful. So do keep it up. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time to meet this week's special guest, Amanda Prowse. Amanda is an award-winning author of 28 best-selling novels whose inspirational rags-to-riches story reads like the plot of one of her own books. She went from being a single mum living on the breadline to becoming a millionaire writer while living a roller coaster of life experiences. She suffered several miscarriages before falling pregnant with her son, Josh, in 1997, but was diagnosed with bowel cancer in 2002. But nothing has been as traumatic and heartbreaking as nursing her 20-year-old son back to health after he attempted suicide in 2017. Amanda and Josh have since written a poignant and moving book about this experience called The Boy Between. Now, just to warn you, this will be an emotional interview, so please be aware that there will be mentions of suicide and depression, should that be an issue for you as a listener. But Amanda is one of the most joyful people you are ever going to meet, so you are going to hear lots and lots of lovely advice and words of wisdom too. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. 
Oh, that's great. Now, you have such an inspirational story. You didn't get your first book published until you were in your 40s. Tell us how that came about. Where are you now? Because it has been very successful, hasn't it? It has, and it's weird. I don't think you can ever really plot your life journey, can you? It sort of happens to you. And I'd always been a massive reader. I grew up in a house without books in it. So libraries were my educators, my friends, and really my place of solace. And every book I read throughout my life always fell into two categories. I either thought, I can do better than that, or I wish I'd written that. But you don't know if you really can write a book until you try. But I'd always wanted to. And I finally put pen to paper in my 40s, as you say. My husband's a soldier and he'd gone off on tour. And I wrote my first book, Poppy Day, which I think I published in March 2012. And I had so many rejections, 70 credible rejections. People telling me, you know, no one wanted to read a love story set in London and Afghanistan. It wasn't really commercial. It wasn't. I just felt so disheartened. But I thought, no, I've got real faith in this story. So we self-published it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of went a bit nuts from there, really. I, I picked up a huge readership, which was amazing. And I think I was writing about things that everyone related to, just my life experience, which when you're living your life feels very ordinary to you. But of course, it isn't to you, to other people. Your life's always quite extraordinary. And I wrote about family life. And before I knew it, I had this readership and I picked up an agent, which was quite remarkable, an amazing woman who changed my life, really. That was it. And my second book, it sold 250,000 copies in the first month. It's quite extraordinary because you did so many jobs before... You actually started write, you know, writing full-time as a novelist. And I remember reading one of your interviews. You were a single mum at one point. And you were down to your last sort of 20 pounds, weren't you? That you, you were kind of on your knees in terms of money. And you must have, in your life since then, had many sort of extraordinary sort of pinch-me moments. Yeah, we were really skint for a, lo- a long, long time. But you kind of get used to it. And you don't really realise how much you're struggling until you stop struggling. And you look back and think, do you know what? That was really horrible. And I think my first pinch me moment was I was on a tube and someone who wasn't a relative of mine was reading one of my books. It was, it was <laughs> Lovely. And I went, as my nan would say, like a complete wally. I didn't know what to do. I, was, I went all unnecessary. I thought, oh, that's my, my book. It was just the most incredible feeling. I don't think anything will match it, to be honest, even though I've seen that many times now. It's quite incredible. But that first time someone engaged in something that had come out of my head. I still think that's magic, isn't it? And uh, yeah, that was certainly a real high for me. And I think some of the lows are when my first book took a while to to gain traction, I was getting so many rejections, thinking, well, that's it. I've written the book. I think it's good, but I can't make a living out of this. No one's interested in it. So I'll probably just go back to cleaning and all the other things I was doing. What was that voice in your head then that said, don't give up? To be honest, I think I still have a voice that's stronger, Lorraine, that tells me, well, you shouldn't really be here anyway. Someone's going to come one day and say, get out of this house. It's not your Imposter syndrome. I really, I think most women I know, it doesn't matter what heights you achieve in any of your careers. It doesn't matter. You still, I personally feel that a lot of the women I know, women I admire and look up to have done amazing things, you know, nurses and great mothers and dressmakers and bakers, people who achieve incredible things with the talents that women have at our fingertips, and not even in the world of business necessarily. But we still have this voice in our shoulder that we're not quite as good as the next person. I think we need to start supporting each other and telling each other just how bloody marvellous we are, because we are, we achieve great things. So what, what stopped you giving up? 70 rejections is a lot. Yeah, I think it was two things. First of all, by this stage, I married my husband. 
And I was able financially to say, you know what, that's okay. He's going to pay the rent while I take my foot off the gas for a bit, which I hadn't had before. And I think financially I was coming in from a place where I knew we weren't going to starve if I carried on pursuing it. I was going to give myself another six months, which is what I did. I think that was the biggest thing. Actually, I was physically able not to give up because there was no pull on my time to go back and work because he was taking care of the bills, basically, which was an incredible gift from him and something I've never really had before. I just appreciate it so much. It's an amazing thing he did for me, for us. And I think also that I thought, you know what? I'd had cancer. I'd been really poorly. This is my one time round the block. So I'm going to have a go because mm-hmm. why not? This is my one life. And I think from that place of adversity, I recognised that I needed to push a bit harder because what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The worst thing had happened. Mm -hmm. I was told I wasn't well and I was battling that. So I just felt I had very little to lose at that point. It was only another rejection. So why not hang on for another six months and see if you can get a yes? And I did. Now you talk about your husband, Simeon. I mean, it's such a beautiful love story and how you met. Uh, Can you share that with us? Wasn't this morning, Trish? I'm screaming. (laughs) How hard is it already? Just empty the bin. Um, He's lovely. I wasn't interested, to be honest. I was a single mum until Josh was eight. And I was pretty bruised, as you can be after relationships that don't work. I wasn't interested. I'd put on weight, felt a bit rubbish about myself physically. I felt low. I had lost my faith and I felt bruised. and I I just hid away for most of my 20s and my 30s, actually, which is a shame because I was a goddess looking back. I could have been out there having a lovely old time, walking around Tesco in a string bikini. What was wrong with me? Yes, we all, (laughs) Trish and I always say that we would have just worn much shorter skirts if we (laughs) thought more highly of our bodies then. It's that confidence thing, isn't it? Again, I met Simeon, my son Josh and his son Ben were friends at school. And I met him on a rugby pitch wearing my dad's old coat, no makeup, pair of dirty wellies. And I looked at him and it was the weirdest thing. Everyone who's told me about love at first sight, I'm like, yeah, that's just beer goggles love. That doesn't exist. That's desperation. But it was like I knew him. I felt like I knew him and I couldn't get him out from behind my eyelids. I kept picturing him and thinking about him. And we've been together pretty much ever since. He's my great mate and I absolutely love him. I really do. I'm very, we're very lucky. Oh, that's so lovely. So you must have then, because obviously he had a son, you had a son, creating that kind of blended family, the modern family together. How did that work? Did it all fit into place quite nicely? It was a piece of cake. Have you seen the Brady Bunch? It was just like that. (laughs) I wish. I wish. It was hard, you know. Um, and, and weirdly enough, it was hard step parenting, which we've both done, although now we just, they're our, they're our kids. It doesn't matter, you know, who grew who. It was very much about the little things that caused the biggest frictions. We thought we were on the same page, you know, morally, and this is our ideas of how we want to raise our kids and our vision for the future. It was little things, you know. Uh, ben was allowed to have catch up with everything. Ben was allowed a computer game that Josh wasn't. I was strict on bedtimes. All the little things that caused massive friction. Mm-hmm. And also the kids felt very displaced because for the first time in their little lives, it seemed possible that their person might love someone more than they love them or didn't have the right amount of time for them. So it was very important that we sat them down and said, look, you know, we've fallen in love with each other and we don't love you yet, but we might and we will Mm -hmm. if we work hard enough Mm -hmm. and we like you enormously. And so we can all live together. But Simeon, Ben will always be your guy and he'll Mm -hmm. never feel about Josh the way he feels about you. He's your man. And Joshy, I'm your mum and I will always love you more than I could possibly love anyone else, more than Simeon and more than Ben. But that's okay. And something weird's happened. Actually, the older they've got, I mean, they're now big hairy monsters in their 20s. (laughs) I love Ben. I, I love Ben. I didn't at first. And he didn't love me. Of course he didn't. We were strangers. 
but I truly love him and he loves me and Simeon loves Josh. It's not been without hard work, but we've got mm-hmm. there in the end and it's just lovely. And that kind of brings us to your story. And we're here to talk about your book, The Boy Between, which you've written with your son, Josh. And I think this story is particularly pertinent and actually really useful for families now because it's about the mental health of young people. Now, you were called to Josh when he was in residence at Bristol University in 2017 after he had attempted suicide by taking an overdose. Now, he was suffering from depression and he called you at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's kind of the call every parent would dread. Just talk us through the beginning of your journey with that, because the book is so extraordinary and I found it really helpful around learning how to parent a child perhaps who's not as mentally robust as other children because they're all very different, aren't they? So talk us through your journey with Josh. Well, Josh was a super smart kid. He's, you know, sailed academically through school. He found social situations a little bit tough and I would say was one of those children who was a bit of an outsider because he looked at the world in a slightly different way. But I had no inkling that he was suffering with his mental health, really. He had dyslexia and dyspraxia diagnosed, didn't he, in his early teens? Yeah, in his early teens. But Mm. we decided, you know what, that's all right. That's just your normal job. So that's fine. You know, a lot of people do have those those conditions. They lead wonderful and successful lives. In a way, it's a bit of a gift because you look at the world differently, which is something we prize quite highly in our house. I think there were lots of little things building up in Josh that we weren't aware of. And the thing is, Lorraine, I would hand on heart, had I spoken to you seven years ago, I'd have said, I'm so lucky, smug mum. I did everything right. I had my dinner with my kids. We went on a holiday together. I know their friends. They text me when they arrive. You know, I know their partners. They're in and out the house. I would have said I was doing everything right. I would look at people who weren't and think, oh, yeah, bless, you know, Mm -hmm. smug. I know what I'm doing. Um, If only you were doing what I was doing, because everything was great. Everything wasn't great. And I didn't see it coming. And that, for me, is still the biggest shock, something I'm deeply ashamed of, something I will always find hard to reconcile because um, I had my eye off the ball and Josh fell through the cracks. When did it start to unravel, do you think? Looking back, I can see it started to unravel before his A-levels. When he stopped studying, he describes it as he became unplugged. He said, right. my, brain, my brain just stopped. He said, I couldn't revise. I couldn't write anything. And, and I think I didn't want to see all the clues that, that were there. A lack of interest in his appearance, a lack of interest in the things that had held his interest before, sports or socialising, whatever it was. Because I didn't want my child to have a mental illness. I didn't want him to have that label on him. And more importantly, if he got that diagnosis, I then didn't know what I was going to do with it. We are in a pandemic, so it is more difficult around, but they're not getting any support from university counsellors or schools or colleges. Is that what you felt with Josh going through the three institutions he went through? It really was. And I think the tragedy is that universities are being stretched and pulled thin. And very often mental health, which is is thankfully becoming more of an open dialogue between students and student bodies and universities, At the time, particularly for Josh, it was very much there's a helpline you can call between working hours. What's your advice for parents with troubled teenagers at university now? It's hard because you want them to fly, you want them to soar and be independent. And I used to say to myself, well, if Josh isn't answering his phone, it's because he's having a really good time. He's Mm -hmm. probably, you know, out with his mates or he's sloshed somewhere in a corner or, you know, he's, he's you know, having sex, something wonderful, this image in my head of this great life that he was leading. And so it was hard to balance at what point I interfered and whether I was being an overprotective, inquisitive mum or whether there was a real need. My advice is that if you're already worried about your child, 
If you're already taking interest in their mental health, if you're looking for resources, reading books, going on charity websites, speaking in forums, you're already doing a great job. It means you're aware and you're open to the fact that maybe they might need extra support and help. So first of all, don't beat yourself up because that's great. If you're doing all those things, you're doing that right. But I think it's really about opening up a dialogue. And it doesn't necessarily mean about, I'm not talking about talking to your kids. Everyone says, you know, talk it through, talk it through. If they could talk it through, we wouldn't be in this problem in the first place. Yeah. We'll be talking. But I think the first thing is just be open to the fact that your child's route may not end how you see it. So for me, I had this very fixed image in my head that academic success was success for Josh. You know, clever old Josh, Dr. Josh, you know, super Well, he was an A-star student, wasn't he? And for a family like mine, to have a kid who was going to a top-notch university, no one went to university. It was just incredible for us. I can remember my nan and granddad just going nuts at these offers that were coming in for Josh. But of course, that was all pressure on him. Mm. And, And part of my failing, certainly, was that I couldn't visualise a life that didn't end with him getting a degree, throwing his hat in the air like they're doing the movies and going off and becoming a scientist, job done. And I think had I been more open and said, you know what, you don't have to finish this degree because every day, every, every, every experience you have, every bit of learning, every choice you make is building your future. Who knows what that future is? None of us. Who knows what our own futures are? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if I hadn't been so fixed in that and so set that that was the answer for Josh he may have been able to ask for help quicker and I would have been able to help him sooner. Do you feel guilty about that, Amanda? Every mm. day I feel guilty, Trish, because I think I superimposed, I live my life vicariously through Josh's amazing achievements. I think I set him on a path that maybe wasn't the right path for him. I think part of him didn't want to disappoint me, let us down as a family, which is an awful pressure that I'd put on his shoulders unwittingly. And had I been open to the fact, as I say, that, that a degree isn't the be-all and end-all. There are many ways to live a great, happy, successful life without a bit mm-hmm. of paper in your nits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yes, I think his, his, his outcome could have been different sooner. Thankfully, he's still here. And sometimes I was too close to it to see what the issues were. But I say in the book, if someone had come into the room and looked at the conversations we were having, they would have said, for goodness sake, don't be worrying about the drop in the grade or the best course. Take him out completely. Just mm-hmm. let him sit in a room, listen to yeah. some music. His bits of the book are actually really moving because he does explain mental illness and depression really well because there is a real urge, isn't there, especially as a, a parent from, I mean, I come from a background where no, no one in my family has been to university. So it's a similar kind of thing. There's a very big expectation around this. What he talks about is how you can't solve the problem. You can't make him happy or put a sticking plaster on it and and often that's the default setting is isn't it as a parent how does he talk about it now with you how does he remember it now he says that he can now see that my intervention came from a place of love also he says that my lack of understanding was incredibly frustration even hampered him in his recovery because he felt that I am the one person who, who has his back more than anyone else. I'm his mum. And it's our job, isn't it, to fix things. And we always say, you know, what can I do? And I'll fix it. And we're constantly worrying about the well-being of the people we love, particularly our children and how we make everything better. Um, and the fact that I couldn't was a frustration for me, but also for him. I think part of him was like, oh, come on, man, fix it, fix this. But you can't, mm-hmm. you can't fix it. So we were both very frustrated. And I think he says that my naivety, my very emotional response. So Josh would say, I can't get out of bed today, mum. I don't want to be here. And I would just sob. 
I would cry because that's my default setting. I'm a very emotion, emotionally led person. Mm. And that was to his detriment. What he needed was someone to take the tiller and say, right, okay, this is what we're going to do right now, today, this minute. There was no magic cure. There is no magic cure. And actually, his recovery was very much like turning a tanker. It was lots of little things that helped him on the road to recovery. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we say there was no moment where we got to open a bottle of champagne yeah. and sit back and go, whoa, he's fixed. It doesn't work. Even now, you can't say that, can you? No. no. It's about a good day and a bad day. At the moment, thankfully, we have more good days than bad. And long may that continue. And actually, that's maybe as good as it gets. And there was a moment, wasn't there, with Simeon when just fate intervened into your lives when he just happened to be near the university that Josh was was at and planning to take his life that afternoon and he turned up didn't he and he was just there at the moment it's extraordinary story it is so I I was working in Australia and I'm a celebrity actually and uh, Josh had been out of contact for quite a while weeks which is very unusual the odd text but nothing really Simeon was three and a half hours away woke up and thought I just something just doesn't feel right and he jumped in the car and he knew that if he gave Josh forewarning, Josh would have given a reason not to open the door and not to see him. And we didn't know that Josh had found, I'm not going to go into detail, but found yeah. a method of taking his life that could have been construed maybe as an accident. He'd planned it very carefully. And Josh was sitting on the end of his bed and he was actually thinking about what his footnote might be to his life mm. and how it wouldn't matter because nothing mattered. He just wanted to go to sleep. And... Um, Simeon knocked on his door and Josh let him in and Josh's living conditions were fairly putrid. Mm. Josh had almost gone beyond. Um, he writes about that very movingly in the book and to descend into that kind of way of living if you have depression. I think people don't understand that, do they? But it is actually not taking care of yourself, not washing. Not You, you can get there quite quickly sometimes. And he did. And, and it's, it's, it's withering because he says, well, it, it wasn't important. It wasn't important to have a shower or even have a drink, or eat something, or change my bed linen, or flush the loo. What was the point? Nothing mattered. And I can now see that for Simeon, looking at it, it was horrific. But Josh was viewing the world through the lens of his depression, and those small things didn't even register for him. Mm-hmm. He was very, very poorly by the time we got to him. So you brought him home and started focusing on a recovery. How was the dynamic within in, in the family home at that time? How did you start to behave as a family unit around him. It was horrific, Trish. It was absolutely mm. horrific. And, and actually, I sort of thought when I heard that he was home and safe and I came home a few days later, well, fantastic, that's it then. We, we saved him. We stopped that event happening. Mm. This is wonderful. But it was just actually the start of our journey. We were on the edge of a clum- crumbling cliff. We just didn't realise it. And like anything that comes into your life, um, cancer, death, depression, anything that's life-changing, you all have to change the shape of how you live. Everything changes. The dynamic of the house, how you eat meals, the noise levels, your thought process, your sleep patterns, everything was disrupted, which if you think about it, was very hard for everyone in the house, my other son, my husband, myself, but also terrible for Josh because he'd done that. He Mm. was the the, the sort of kernel of dissatisfaction, of, of discomfort that had spread these ripples throughout our happy home. And depression, when it comes to living in your house, doesn't live in one room or a cupboard. It puts a tentacle into every brick, into every morsel of food, every cup of coffee, every blink of sleep. You can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very hard for all of us. It still is some days. It's Do still- you have therapy around it, Amanda? No. 
No, mainly because uh, Josh was adamant about trying to contain it. He didn't want to share how he felt about with how he, what he was going through with anyone else. Yeah. He didn't believe anyone could fix him or help him. Josh has had therapy and we have kind of let him lead us. And that is still the case. We still, even though we are responsible for Josh while he's in our house and his mental health journey, he's a grown man and he very mm-hmm. much leads us. And we are all, every day, we don't know the answers. We write about our experiences, but we are learning and we have all learned so much. You know, we are completely different people that we were five, six years ago. How have you changed? I've learned that I can't fix it. I've learned there's no solution. I've learned that actually sometimes the best thing, rather than go straight into solution mode, is to just let Josh be. That's really great advice for all mm. parents, isn't it? Amanda, he's an 18 or 19-year-old at the time. You you don't have access to his doctor anyway, do you? You can't step in in that, in that sense. He has to do it. What were the kind of actual practical steps that maybe helped him on his journey to recovery? I'm really glad you've said that because it's such a strange thing when they're at the sixth form in school mm. or when they're 18 or 16. You're party to everything. You know, every bit of missed homework, every late, you're, you're, you're called, there's letters, there's emails flying back and forth. And then suddenly they are cast into this situation that can, even if you don't have depression, can be isolating, lonely, scary, away from home for the first time. And all those challenges, cooking for yourself, laundry, and you have absolutely no recourse and no redress. And, and, and it was very, very hard. So I would, one of the things that I've um, learned, and that certainly has helped with us, is to make sure that if I'm not available, then there are other people in our listening group. Mm-hmm. And it's Josh's friends, it's my parents, it's it's his wider family. We're there to listen, pick up a text or a call at any time, day or night. And it's an informal rotor. We don't plan it, we don't talk about it. But Josh knows that at any point, there's someone he can talk to. And one thing that's proved really helpful for us is writing to each other. Now, you don't have to be a best-selling author to do that. Anyone can scribble a note. It can be a post-it. It can be an email. It can be a full-on letter. But writing things down, we found, was a really good way to talk openly about the hardest of conversations. Having to say to someone face-to-face, particularly someone you're close to, do you think you might hurt yourself today? Do you want to end your life today? Is a really hard thing. Mm -hmm. You can write it down and they can reply or not. Actually, that as a means of communication was very, very helpful for us. The response to the book, how has he found that? He's written a very personal story about a very difficult time in his life. But how has the response been and how has that helped or affected him? The truth is, when we started writing it, I didn't want it to be published. Mm-hmm. I thought this is something that will help Josh and I. We're having these conversations. It was a back and forth in, in writing that I thought was very useful to rip the lid off, you know, all of our issues that we were going through, take the plaster off Josh's depression and say, right, let's really examine about how we help you to, to live a good life, a reasonable life, a happy life, which you can with depression. You only ever hear about people struggling with depression, battling depression. It was never, oh, I had a bit of depression and now I'm fine. That never seemed to be the dialogue and that really worried me. So we did it for that reason. And I said to Josh, I feel very anxious about this. I don't want you to be that boy. He said, mum, I am that boy. And then he said, if this helps one person, he said, because when I wanted to end my life, I did, but I didn't the next day or the day after that, or the day after that. And that's what will make the difference. It's helped Josh. It's helped Josh look back on things and A, to see how far he's come, but also to realize that his story is not unique. 
There are millions of families like us, particularly at the moment. All their kids are struggling. The adults are struggling. I wish no one was going through it. Of course I do. But the fact that we are not isolated in our experience makes you feel like you're part of a wider community. And that is comforting. And I've taken a lot from that. And I know Josh has too. So you are dealing with all of this when we look at the timeline, suddenly becoming famous, suddenly becoming wealthy, traveling all around the world and your son going through this in your 40s. So basically right in the middle of midlife. So talk to us a little bit, because I'm sure our listeners um, will want to know, what was your midlife journey like? I kind of feel we're not allowed to suffer, are we? We're not allowed no. to lock us off course. We have to just crack on. And I can remember talking to my mum about her menopause and she said, oh, to be honest, I didn't know I'd gone through the menopause. I thought, well, that's great. What a breeze. I can't wait then. Bring it on. No more periods. Fantastic. This is just going to be a complete breeze. And then my world fell apart. I can remember thinking I must be losing my reason. I must be losing my mind. I had weight gain in places I'd never gained weight. I had hairs cropping up on places I'd never grown hairs. Mm -hmm. I had had hairs. They were then gone. I felt like my life, my mental, emotional stability, everything I took for granted was put in a walk and thrown in the air and I landed very differently. And it was a complete shocker. The only time we've come close to divorcing was not over having cancer or being skint or a child with mental illness. It was through my menopause. <laughs> wow, I mean, gosh, gosh, that's yeah. the You've a massive effect on women's mm-hmm. life. Did you see your GP and get help? I went to see my GP who said, well, I could put you on HRT, but because of your uh, cancer history, I'd rather not. So I thought, oh, well, you know, they know best then. I just won't. Mm-hmm. And I battled on and I battled on. And I think actually it was, again, that feeling that I didn't have the right to let myself come first. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the right to let myself sink physically and emotionally. I just had to keep powering through, powering through. It was bloody awful. It was one of the worst periods of my life. And I, I, I'm sorry to say it lasted seven years. What I had a shame. What a shame. It was yeah. so grim. And, and so, so many resources that I wasn't aware of that I am now. Yeah. I'm 52 now and I've come out the other side. Thank goodness. But I think my life could have been so much easier if I'd if I'd a understood that a change in diet, a change in exercise, even talking to other people who've been through this thing, because I just thought it was me. I thought I had no right. Well, I've, I've lost my libido. Well, that's that then. That's the yeah. sex life. Mm-hmm. You know what? Mm-hmm. How? What a, what a shame. Um, and and it really it was trial and error that all these things slowly have come back to me and just educating myself. But I wish I'd known about the incredible wealth of resource out there, you know, books and gels, these lovely bio HRTs that you don't have to be taking a tablet every day. There are other things you can do, whether mm-hmm. it's organic or herb, but whatever. There's something that works for everyone. Yeah. And if it's straightforward HRT, if that works for you, girl, do it. You know, whatever yeah. it is that gets you through, no one's journey is the same. Have you um, thought about writing about this with any of your characters in your books? Because you do write about midlife women, which we like. I do. I, I always write about midlife women because I think I can only write about what I know. Mm-hmm. And I haven't yet. I write about a lot of women who come to a crossroads in their lives. Like, 
okay, so I've more years behind me than ahead. What is it I want to do? In fact, I have a book coming out later this year called Waiting to Begin. You were very lucky. Yes. I got a preview copy from your publisher this week, so we're super excited about reading oh, that one. Thank you. I haven't seen that yet. That's the first time I've seen a copy. Oh. So that's nice. I like <laughs> 8th it. 8th of that's June, that's out. Waiting to Begin is out on the 8th of June, isn't it? Yeah. Tell us about the character, because she sounds really interesting. She is, Beth. She's amazing. She's just largely based on me in a lot of ways, I think, but based on all of us. Mm-hmm. Where at 16, you have this idea of your grown-up self, and it's either you want to be exactly like your mum or completely different to your mum and you have an idea of the job you might like to do and the man you might like to marry or the person you want to marry and or not you know the children you're going to have the house you're going to live in certainly the dog brand that you're <laughs> and then of course you get to 53 it happens in a mere blink you look back and you think what happened to that girl all those things I thought and all those dreams I had. And actually, sometimes your 53-year-old self way exceeds your expectations. You can't possibly imagine how you've either let go of all the dreams you had or how life just carried you along. You you don't consciously sit down and think, oh, okay, well, this decision is going to lead to that. And this person I'm going to meet is going to influence me in that way. But of course, it all does. It all builds a great tapestry of you, the person you become. And of course, we'll blink again and we'll be 72. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> but we'll be completely different again, won't we? And it's mm-hmm. wonderful. It's wonderful how we can evolve and learn and be. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think women particularly, we should look back to those 16-year-old selves. And I look back to me and dancing to, to soft sell with oh. this <laughs> tainted love. Yeah. Oh, loving like there mm-hmm. is absolute like loving with your every fiber of your being. And the hurt when that love ends and stops. You feel you're never going to recover. Passionate about causes that you can't even remember what they were now. Mm -hmm. But it was enough for you to slam your bedroom door, go to bed at seven and not talk to anyone for 24 hours. (laughs) But that passion, it's it's a shame it gets diluted for a lot of women because life Mm -hmm. is hard. Tremendous success and in in a relatively short space of time. I mean, you talked before about, you know, you came from a council estate background, didn't go into further education. The difference in your life now with family, with friends, how does that pan out? I tell you what's funny is that there were things about my life I used to feel quite ashamed of. Mm -hmm. I used to feel a bit ashamed that I grew up without a spare bedroom. I'd never been Mm -hmm. to Mallorca that my mum thought the height of cordon bleu cookery was Frey Bentos pies. Mm -hmm. But the older I get and the more success I've had, the more I love my background. I love my history. And I think I am a good example that actually anyone can achieve anything. It's all there for the taking. If you give yourself the chance to grab for it and the confidence. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been very fortunate. And I always used to say, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been incredibly lucky. And you talk about a high point earlier uh, in your professional and personal career. One of my highest points was a couple of years ago when I realized I wasn't lucky. I wasn't lucky. Mm. I had a little bit of talent and I've worked very, very hard. Yes. (laughs) Every drop out Mm -hmm. of it and to drive my own life, to be master of my own ship and steer my own course. And that was a high point. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're seeking financial reward. Maybe you want to achieve a qualification, bake the best bloody carrot cake you've ever made, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you can do it and it's up to you. And that's a wonderfully empowering realisation. But it's not about luck because there's just Mm -hmm. as much bad luck as good luck. It's about working hard, setting your sights and allowing yourself 
even the possibility that you might be able to achieve it, it can change everything about you. You have worked really hard, though. I've read some of the interviews with you in the past where you once talked about you had to work on Christmas. And you do write every day, don't you, as well? And it's quite a relentlessly positive attitude. Do you look back, though, and I'm talking for our listeners who are women with families at the same age as you, do you look back and wonder if perhaps you worked too hard, if you missed things, if you, is, do you have any regrets, I guess, is what I'm asking, Amanda? I have definitely have regrets because I sometimes, I don't think it's possible for me and I, I, I think for many women to have balance. It's very hard to have a balance between well-being, family life, social life, and this relentless drive to achieve a career. For me, it's like a pendulum that swings. Sometimes I'm all about my job and I'm working flat out. And you know what? Maybe my husband might like a chat of an evening and he doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Maybe my kids might need a walk outside and a bit of TLC. They don't get it. And that's not right. And on the other hand, there are times when I know if I haven't worked to the level I have, I wouldn't have achieved what I have. I think it's very hard to achieve balance. There will always, for me, be regrets, be guilt, because it's almost like if I'm pulled in one direction, I can't then give it in the other. Mm -hmm. And again, the older I get, the more I'm realising that, you know what? What's important is the little things. It might not be about making a deadline, but it might be about having a cup of tea with my son who's having an off day. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning more and more about what's important to me. And part of my guilt over Josh's illness is that I regret not always being available to him because I had my head down working because I thought that was the best thing for him, for his future. And actually, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it'd be about one less book a year and more time with him. Mm-hmm. So we are living in very, very strange times. 2021, it's not got off to the best start for all of us. What are your hopes and dreams for yourself and your family this year? If you can have more good days than bad, if you can find joy in the small things, because let's face it, none of us are booking tickets to Mallorca right now. It's about yeah. having a decent cup of tea in a hot bath and making time for yourself and getting through the day. Or reading a good book, Amanda, yes. like one of yours to take but you away from... Not feeling yeah. guilty as well, Trish. Yeah. If you can't cook an organic meal from scratch whilst learning a new language on a unicycle and practising your knife throwing, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I think what you're talking about and what you're writing about and what Josh is writing about is really, really powerful and very, very helpful to all our listeners. So thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. I've really loved it. So here we are at the super useful bit of the show. And today we're going to be talking tummies. How is yours doing, Trish? Because midlife Mm. brings all sorts of issues with our guts because of the drop in estrogen. And it's a good time to review your diet and lifestyle to tackle these issues. Mm, It is. Are you trying to ask me if I'm regular, Lorraine? Is that what you're trying to say? She's gone quiet. I don't know what kind of regular you're looking for quiet. you, Trish. That's, yeah. the, <laughs> that's the thing. I never know what you're going to say. I went mm. strangely quiet because you know what? I can talk about all sorts of things and nothing mm. bothers me, but the poo talk bothers Number me. Number twos. It Number really twos. bothers okay. me. It's, I'm I can't that. do it. I'm going to look away now. <laughs> Anything to share? Okay, so, well, um, do you want to tell us who you've been speaking to? Given issues I have that have occurred, which you, you all have to talk about on my behalf. <laughs> I have spent some time with the gut doctor, Megan Rossi. She wrote a fantastic book called Eat Yourself Healthy, an easy to digest guide to health and happiness from inside and out. Now, the thing about that book was it really changed my attitude, not just to what I ate, but to stress 
and to the way the brain and the gut are linked. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also talked this week to Emma Ellis Flint, who is a nutritional therapist who specializes in perimenopause and menopausal women. She was telling me that, you know, actually the key is to look at when your body changes is when your gut's changing so when your skin is loosening and you're losing the collagen Mm -hmm. then your gut will be loosening a bit too so all of that will be changing which will affect how regular you are so I can't even say it Trish it's really like a proper mental I might have to have some therapy over this obviously had a traumatic incident at some point with your number twos I had quite a lot of them with the bloody children, I'll tell you. Oh, God, yeah. Anyway, mm. what happens, let me tell you what happens. The estrogen receptors in the gut, the estrogen goes, mm-hmm. the receptors are affected, and your gut function, mobility of your gut changes. There's a lot you can do about that. But, you know, if you can try to remain unstressed, that would be really mm-hmm. helpful. Because while you're coping with the hormone changes, mainly in perimenopause, when your estrogen's going up and down, that affects the microbiome in your gut, which affects your ability to digest and detoxify mm-hmm. the bad things that you are consuming and stress reduces the length of the villi which is the little hairy things which pass oh, yeah. stuff through in the small intestine imagine that stress is so powerful it can reduce mm. the length of something in your gut and that mm-hmm. means that nutrients aren't really absorbed as well as oh. they should be so we do need more plant food in our diet which you get don't you trish because you're a uh, oh yes being vegetarian. a vegetarian yes. um, but there are prebiotic foods which you can Mm. focus on particularly beneficial to the gut and they enhance digestion and beneficial to the microbiome which sounds like something quite exciting in your tummy doesn't it shall i read the list of loads of bugs there isn't it bugs and bacteria i can't upset you so i read the list of microbiome (laughs) friendly foods there's all the things i can't really eat because i don't like them that's the reason I can't eat beetroot, beetroot, artichokes, chicory, mm. garlic, onion, leeks, spring onion, asparagus, beetroots in there, fennel, green. It's the green, mm. veg- a lot of green vegetables. It's, the green, um, it's the rainbow. It's all the colours. It's the it? rainbow. Dark berries mm. and apples. You've got to avoid rubbish fats. So least, you know, no cheap vegetable oils, no deep fried, high fat diets. And um, this leads to the wrong type of gut bacteria. And those mm-hmm. gut bacteria can uh, lead to inflammation which is a kind of a leaky gut so it's not being processed Ooh, properly and um, she's really emphatic about extra virgin olive oil um, mm. because there's a load of myths around coconut oil being good for the gut and she says it simply isn't extra virgin oh, olive okay. oil oh, didn't know stick that. with cheap affordable uh, not fatty and you've got to cut down on meat as well because it's quite hard and it produces for the gut to digest and it's, it produces the wrong type of bacteria and the ones more likely to cause inflammation also trish no mm-hmm. alcohol <laughs> no alcohol or no alcohol oh well it's you know it's funny that because we we've, we've talked a lot about alcohol haven't we <laughs> and we're just sort of coming out of dry January I haven't indulged yet but what I have worked out is that my hangovers are in my stomach now they're not in my head it's just my stomach feels horrible all my insides feel horrible rather than that old axe in the back of the head that you used to get (laughs) so that really does tie in what you're saying here about the old about the estrogen receptors and all of that being depleted so um, well also it's your liver so your liver detoxifies the ethanol in the alcohol and that's where it all Mm. happens and actually it's less effective at doing that in midlife because of lack of estrogen so 
alcohol has a worse effect on your body. Our effectiveness to digest reduces as we age. So we need to boost that and, and stimulate our digestion with good foods. So bitter and sour foods. So things like lemon and lime juice. That's why apple cider is kind of everywhere. Oh, I can't, yes. Um, yeah. Apple cider vinegar. Yeah. Everyone talking about that. Yeah. And actually, I've wanted these things a bit more, crave them a bit more. Olives, capers, pickles, mm-hmm. tangy fermented food. Do you know, I quite like sauerkraut, Trish. Oh, and a bit of kimchi. Yeah, like that. Mm. I did ask her about a probiotic because I've had un- really unfortunate situations with them. <laughs> they don't agree with me. No, even if I spent they millions They send of you pounds, running to the toilet. They, they explode me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Do you blow up like a balloon and then yes. explode? Oh, dear. Yes, I mean, I literally can't get things on or do them up if do help a lot of women though don't they 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 do do. they are good for the gut yeah they are she says it's really good because it's about balance and if your gut is out of balance which it more likely will be in midlife then you do need some large quantities of bacteria she said go for a total count that is 10 billion plus oh that's that sounds like a lot but you can probably get that your um, capsule that's on your dating requirements isn't it for your dating app for men it must earn 10 billion plus That would be good. But I thought it was quite interesting because you talked about gut instinct, didn't you, earlier on in the segment about um, whether to go back to work or not. And that whole, as you say, the connection between the gut and your brain, because it's they're constantly communicating with each other, aren't they? And uh, that's why your gut feelings are so important. And I always sort of notice that like little children, like they have stomach aches, don't they? When they're upset or they're worried and they always it always manifests as a stomach ache. And that that is why. I used to get stomach migraines migraines as a child oh gosh really well there you yeah. go so um now we I, I know, know what that says but a yes, lot more exactly. about our guts and we know far too much about your uh, probiotic explosions here we are trish ta-da we're at the part of the show which sometimes goes off course and i do worry that we <laughs> might be taken off air at some point for nostalgia noodling <laughs> It's a big carry-on film, doesn't it? Mm, Now, what have you got for me? Come on, throw it at me. Well, this isn't rude. It starts off quite nice, actually, because I got sent this really gorgeous hand cream this week by a lovely PR person, and it's lemon thyme and dock leaves, and it's by this lovely brand called Heathcote and Ivory. They make lovely beauty things, and they do this range for the Royal Horticultural Society. But as you can see, I'm showing it on the screen. It's a metal tube, and it's got a, a key it's got a key oh. that you slot in the end and you turn it so that the tube kind of goes down quite nicely and you don't you know you don't lose any of the it's lovely an teenager key well exactly oh, squeeze it, it in the middle but my brain being what it is i've gone from lovely lovely beautiful hand cream yeah. to foul tins of meat from the 70s and 80s. What? Are you talking about oh, corned beef hash? I'm talking about corned beef. I'm talking about corned yeah. beef. Do you remember the tins that used yes. to have a key, like this key, that you'd Cooked roll? Tins. Like, yeah, and I just always remember my mum got one out of the cupboard. I'd be like, oh, God, not the corned beef. Or not the lump of tinned ham with, like, <laughs> gel, jelly on it. I can smell it, it now. Oh. I can smell it now. That's not good for my gut. It's quite not good for your gut. That, that's quite revolting. And I would say, no wonder I became a vegetarian. No. At least we didn't have sardines. That would no. have been the worst. <laughs> That's enough. What about you? I don't you? know how we made it out of the 80s as <laughs> grown-up adults with functioning digestive systems. <laughs> now, exactly. I've been watching It's a Sin, which mm. was beautiful and moving and 
really kind of the most extraordinary thing I've seen on telly for a long time. But there was a little clip in it, distracted as I was slightly, and I'm so easily distracted. There was a little clip of uh, Nick Berry in EastEnders. Oh, yes. Simon Wicks. Wixie, that's it. Wixie from EastEnders. Which I was thinking, and my husband said, oh, he was very handsome for his time. And and it was quite a good clip of EastEnders. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, God, yeah, he was. He must have been for us as teenagers. Mm. He must have been. He was in it from 1985 to 1990. One of the first ever male pinups, wasn't he? Do you remember that word pinup? It was. Pinups, yes. Or soap pinups, anyway, for sure. Are there any other soap pinups? I had two that I remembered. I quite liked. I'm well, not, not. Kevin, not Kevin Webster from Coronation Street. No. <laughs> Do you remember Angel from Buffy? Does that count as a soap? I, I think we can only talk about Coronation Street. You've made Street. a face, I've said Buffy <laughs> now. Is that not one well, of your things? soap? Well, no, I was Thought thinking of American you, were give, soap. you were going to yeah. find me someone quite funny from Emma Dale Coronation no. Street. No, no. Not, not happening. No, no. I was just not remembering actual, no. actual pin-ups. Edward Scissorhands was a pin-up of mine as well. I don't know what that yeah. says either. Weird. No, well, let's Weird. not talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> he, then I was thinking, where's Nick Berry now? What's happened to him? Oh, yes. Where'd he go? So he was in it five years, left it. Went off to um, that funny heartbeat situation. Oh, thing. yes, you I quite that liked that. Yeah. But he came back in 2012. I must have missed it. must have been asleep. For Pat's funeral, his mum. Oh, oh, you missed that. Oh, oh yes. Pat. Pat. But he resides happily in Epping. Mm. Do you know what he did? No, I don't. Became see. a stay-at-home dad. Oh, good for him. Good, good for him. Good you, Nick. Good yes. on you. Hurrah. That's a nice little nostalgia, it is, isn't, isn't it? it? Mm, I bet he got a thrill seeing himself... In its yes. Wow. Great. It really took me back. The whole show just took me back to the 80s. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, do tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. Please subscribe on your podcast provider and do rate and review us. Thank you for the reviews that we've already had. They are brilliant. And for those of you who have asked, we will put all the things that we mention in this podcast on our private Facebook group. So all the details will be put there. Yes. And of course, anybody can join that. So do pop on and have a look. And also you can find us at Instagram or email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.